Hey everyone, it's Megan Bowen, and you are listening to the Unwritten Playbook Podcast, where we showcase how smart and interesting people are breaking away from how things have always been done and charting a new path. We will explore topics ranging from marketing, sales, customer success, and also personal development and leadership themes. Join us to learn from pioneers who are paving the way for what the future brings. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Unwritten Playbook, where we talk to interesting people who are rejecting a status quo and paving a new way. I'm really excited for our guest today, Cassie Young, a partner at Primary Venture Partners and a seasoned operator and executive in SaaS and marketplace businesses. She was at Sail Through at Campaign Monitor. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm super excited to dig into this conversation. Um, But before we get into the topic uh, at hand, um, I would love for you to tell your story. Tell us more about who you are, what you've done, and and why, why we should care. Sure. That sounds great. And uh, I think the theme that you'll hear as I tell my story is that I consider myself a business builder. And I've done that in a, in a number of different capacities over the last 15 years or so. So maybe I'll kind of rewind up to post-college. So I actually started my career on Wall Street in investment banking, covering tech and media deals. And what I tell people is that tech looked quite a bit different in 2005 than it did today. The hot deal we worked on that year was MySpace getting acquired by News Corp. So Definitely a little bit different. And, you know, what I found was even in some of those early days of tech, I loved learning about those businesses, but I hated the monotony of cash flow modeling, right? So uh, in 2006, I left Wall Street and took my first startup job in New York City at a company called TheLadders.com that's still around today. It was, uh, um, we charged job seekers $30 a month to access jobs that paid 100K or more. And um, I think that was, I know we're going to talk a lot about status quo today. That was probably my first little professional shakeup where, you know, New York tech was very nascent in 2006. And I remember people saying, you're going to go work for a startup and you're going to do it in New York City, like at least move to San Francisco if you're going to go do that. Yeah. And so, you know, just, you know, on, on, a, on a selfish New York City note, particularly everything going on right now, it's been amazing to watch just the journey of New York tech in the 14 years since. So um, went to the ladders as kind of a jack of all trades business analyst and ended up uh, running a large chunk of our performance marketing and direct response program for the subscription business there. Um, you know, stayed in that business uh, through the financial crisis in 08 and 09. Lots of interesting stories working in the job market uh, during that time. I bet. And ultimately um, left to pursue my MBA full time. Um, and so that was kind of another interesting inflection point where, you know, I had worked for several MBAs at the ladders. They said, don't go to business school. It's going to look like you're taking a two year vacation. Right. And so that was like another, okay, am I making the right choice? Yes or no. And, and ultimately decided to do it, but to keep active with tech companies while I was there. So I, um, you know, I talked about being a business builder before while I was in uh, the full-time MBA program, actually started a consulting business to help startup companies organize their customer data for fundraising uh, decks. And this was the kind of right place, right time, because after the 08 financial crisis, many companies were starting in New York City, right? And a lot of them were going about it for the first time. And so that experience, you know, from the ladders was was super helpful. So um, one of the businesses I was consulting for, a company 
called Saver, which was a yield management software for higher end restaurants, um, ended up turning into a, a full time kind of high growth opportunity. Um, so was there for for some time running, um, you know, marketing and biz dev and, and top line growth there. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, it was just kind of continuation of, of marketing and growth roles. Right. So P&L ownership for consumer and subscription businesses. Um, but, you know, sometime around 2013, uh, I had a, a CEO I was working with who said to me, you got to get into SaaS. Right. And uh, his his comment to me at the time was, if you go work for a company that ends in the word box as your next move, like I'm going to lose it. And that's no, no offense to anyone who's worked at a company who has the word box in it. But what he was getting at with that comment was, you know, consumer businesses, marketplace businesses are interesting, but SaaS is just a fascinating beast on its own in terms of the solvency of the businesses, the nuances of the businesses. And so I said, how am I possibly going to get a SaaS job? I've never worked in software before. And so I went to go work for sale through in 2013 because it was marketing technology SaaS. And so since I had been on the customer side, I brought a unique angle um, to being able to speak the language of the customers and build programs accordingly. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, joined sale through uh, in 2013 and, and going back to the business building theme, you know, helped to, to, to scale that business from about $10 million in ARR, you know, to, to 50, um, but also helped our clients build their businesses, right? So we were servicing retail clients, e-commerce, media publishers. And because we were the marketing engine of what they were doing, it was a really unique lens into lots of different business models beyond just our own. So went into sale through as, um, the global client services leader uh, ultimately ended up taking on our CRO job, which is probably something we'll talk more about later. Um, I always say 10 years ago, if you told me I would be a sales executive, I would tell you, you would have lost your mind. Um, but I think there's a lot of just uh, general management things that can be borrowed. And so, you know, ultimately sale through was a seven year journey. We sold the business in 2018 to uh, a roll up with uh, insight and campaign monitor and a number of other marketing technology brands. And I had the opportunity, uh, to take an executive role across the portfolio of brands, which was a, a $200 million business and a bigger opportunity there. And so, you know, uh, left the operating side um, in January of this year, five and a half weeks before the world stopped, um, to, to take a role on the venture capital side. And my, my role there is a little bit unique in that I spend 80% of my time with our existing portfolio company CEOs and their management teams on uh, general go-to-market strategies, sales, marketing, customer success, again, business business building. Um, and then the other 20% of the time on more traditional VC activities around, you know, check writing and, and diligence and things like that. Um, but, you know, so that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. But I think, again, the, the common thread you'll hear is, you know, building businesses in different ways, whether it's, you know, as an operator, as a client services person, you know, ultimately helping people take advantage of software. And now, you know, most recently on the venture capital side. Yeah, I what an impressive background and it's so it's so great to just hear your journey um sort of outlined that way and now that you're at primary I think you just have the ability to take all of your experience and and broaden your impact in a way because you can help so many companies at the same time instead of just one if you were inside of, of a company. So I love that this was the next step in your journey because clearly you've learned a ton along the way, you have a lot of wisdom to share and now you're able to um have such 
such a bigger impact in, in your current role. It sounds like a lot of fun as well to work with these businesses and really help them kind of figure out um, how they're going to move forward, whether it's getting them unstuck or throwing gas on the fire, wherever, wherever they I, happen to be. I think that's right, Megan. And that's the intention. And I love that you say, you know, um, uh, getting them unstuck because, you know, in telling the, the personal narrative, inevitably you just go through the headliners. You don't yeah. go through like all of the up, down and sideways turns in between. Right. And I tell mm -hmm. people, particularly with the seven year journey at sail through, like anything that could have happened to us in that window happened to us, right? We hit technical scaling challenges. We, our founders moved out of the business and we brought in an outside CEO. We kind of had to turn the business around. We had to get it to profitability. And so I think that's like where the fun and the learning comes from in a professional career. And so being able to, to bring, uh, you know, some of that, that muscle memory and maybe, uh, you know, sanity perspective to our founders is, is definitely very rewarding to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No. And I I've experienced that too. You know, you can, you can tell your career story and people are like, wow, it just sounds like you rose to the top and, and it was so easy. And you're like, oh, I guess I didn't, <laughs> I guess I, I skipped over the parts where I, know. I made right. a mistake or fell down. Tell that story over drinks, right? Cause then you can really get into the, the, the exactly. nitty gritty of some of the particular low lights, right? Uh, but yeah. the, you, you learn from all of them, which is what's most important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know several folks you work with at, at primary as well. So it, it really is a great VC firm. Um, and you. you have a lot of great people on, on the team. So Thank your portfolio you. companies are lucky to have, um, you know, all of you guys, all of them behind them. Um, well, I'm really excited to get into sort of the, the primary topic of what we want to dive into today. And so to, um, to set the table for the rest of the conversation, um, why don't you share mm -hmm. what status quo you reject and, and why you reject it? Absolutely. So I'm going to share a little bit of background and then the fact that was kind of the shot heard around the world or the shot heard around my brain uh, when I when I heard it out there. So I think there's a, a lot of talk in the market about, you know, women and the representation of women in C-suites on executive teams. We probably all lived and breathed it in some capacity. But um, I mentioned before that ultimately we exited sail through to a roll up with Insight. And in August of 2019, I had this fantastic privilege Privilege where Insight brought together all of the C-level women from the global portfolio in New York for a two-day leadership summit. It was really well done. But mm -hmm. the opening line in the, that morning session was that only 11% of the C-suite in tech were held by women. And you know, you hear it at Silicon Valley Bank, I think earlier that year had thrown out some statistics that I think it was in the U.S., 53% of executive teams had women on them, 37% um, of, of boards had women on them. But when you heard that C-suite statistic of only being 11%, I, I thought to myself, this is crazy. Now, to further add to that, uh, the, the presenter went on to share that even if we looked around the room that day at the composition, composition of women that were there, there was a crazy skewness toward HR and general and administrative roles versus the profit generating revenue P&L ownership roles. Mm -hmm. And to me, I sat in there saying, this is absolutely crazy, completely unacceptable, and we have to go do something about it. And so, you know, one amazing on insight that they kind of forced the discussion and went out there with it. Um, but I think, you know, time and time again, you just see it in, in so many companies. And this is something where I'm like, my, my life's work must be committed to changing this because it is just egregious. Yeah. 
Yeah, I completely uh, agree. And, you know, I guess even just from my personal experience, um, and I don't know what this says, but I'm not actually that surprised that that is the statistic because that's what I've seen and that's what I've experienced on, you know, on my own, if I'm, you know, maybe the only woman at a board meeting or around the table. And so, you know, I know we're both part of a group called Chief, which has um, sort of a similar mission to to do that. But, um, you know, why do you think this is the the case? Why do you think that that we've gotten to this point and this is such a clear problem? Before we kind of before we dive into what we're going to do about it, I'd love to explore this a little bit more. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort mm-hmm. of the why here. Yeah, I think it's an amalgamation of a couple different factors. And so I'll talk about one and then I want to talk about why I discount it a little bit. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think inevitably when you talk about any type of DEI initiatives, you hear this pipeline problem thrown around. And I'm like, "Eh, sure, that's partially the case. But I'm also called bullshit on that. Right. Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is, you know, you have women who are very capable in fantastic roles. It's like, how do you close the skills gap to help them ultimately get to the C-suite? Right. So I think a lot of this comes from, you know, um, what are the transferable skills of what it takes to be a revenue oriented C-level executive? And how do we make sure we're building the future generation of women with that, I think is really important. And one thing we can spend more time talking about is particularly coming from the banking background, um, finance and an understanding of the PL to me is typically like a very big gap a lot of times from what makes like a fantastic female VP level versus what makes an amazing, you know, revenue owning uh, C-suite woman. So Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, closing that skills gap is a really important one. I do think that inevitably though, you know, there's, and I think Megan, like one of the reasons you and I have hit it off is you need people who are leading by example um, on this front, right? And so there's kind of this perpetuating problem where if only 11% of people who are in the C-suite, you know, are women, how is that really paving the path for people to understand, okay, well, you know, I, I want to model my behaviors to match that of Megan, right? Because I see her in this amazing role and super capable. And so it's kind of this compounding problem, right? When you have mm-hmm. that small sample size that's there. Um, so I think to me, that's probably, you know, one of the bigger ones. And, you know, one of the things that we, we talk a lot about on the VC side is that same Silicon Valley bank survey that I mentioned from probably like closer to 18 to 24 months ago now, um, was that only one in four founders were female, right? And they had some really interesting data cuts on what the composition of the executive team looked like, depending on whether or not there was a female founder on the team. And Mm -hmm. so I think kind of all of these different things coming together, um, you know, have have just, you know, further perpetuated the the problem and the underrepresentation. Yeah. And I'm curious what you think about this, because, you know, I I was always ambitious growing up and was always like talking about how I was going to take over the world and, you know, my corner of the galaxy. And, um, you know, what was interesting is, um, feedback that I would get from people around me, even family and friends that were supportive, they would be like, well, um, you know, to really succeed in business, you know, you have to be cutthroat and you have to be aggressive and you're just so nice. Like one of my favorite jokes is I'm the nicest person I know. And, <laughs> and, you know, you know, you're just, you're not, you're not going to be cut out for it. Right. Like, 
people that I loved would tell me that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think that that's kind of a common misconception that people hold. If, you know, if you are empathetic or mm-hmm. vulnerable or kind that you're incapable of getting to a C-level position. And I just don't believe that's the case. And I, I lead with kindness and with empathy and vulnerability. And I don't believe that you have to, um, you know, sort of be scary or, or overly aggressive to get what you want. Um, you know, and certainly my approach doesn't always work and I've had challenges with it and I have had to adapt at times, but, um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's an issue? Have you had experience with that? Yeah, I I completely agree with you that I I don't think those are table stakes qualities, right, in in succeeding. And I I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because of the time I spent on Wall Street, right? And Mm. And I think those stereotypes did actually ring true there, right? And I can think about a couple of senior women I worked with where I'm like, this is just no way to go through life, right? In terms of like how you're behaving and conducting yourself. But I I do agree with you. I think it's, you absolutely, can lead with empathy. The operative point of that though, the operative part of that is that you have to lead by example, right? And um, I think that when you are nice, like it still has to be clear that the bar is very, very high, right? Absolutely. I often talk a lot of times, you know, to, and this is not a woman specific thing. This is just in general with employees, right? You know, we, we can talk about our career paths all day long. We can talk about right place, right time, but at the end of the day, great careers and leadership positions happen because people work their asses off. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's lost a lot of the time. And so I always say, like, if you're, if you're going to lead by empathy and, and do the right thing by people, that's great, but they have to know where they stand and the bar still has to be very high so that, you know, when, when something, an opportunity is missed, you know, if you're not the type that's going to be like the jerk, which I think you and I are lying, like, you don't need to do that. Um, it actually, I think is sometimes harder for people to hear that feedback from the nice person because they know that it's like a really big deal. So yep. I think it's making sure the expectations are very clear and there's no better way to do that than by leading by example in the trenches and, and rolling up your sleeves and going about it that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like to say that there's a difference between being nice and being kind. That's correct. And yeah, that's being really kind yeah. is, you know, telling people the truth, especially when it's really hard to hear, mm-hmm. but doing it in a way that, you know, is demonstrating that you care about them, that you're telling them this because you're coming from a place of wanting them to, to grow. You think this might be a blind spot and you're shining yeah. a light on it, you know, not shaming them in public, but unpacking that in private. It, you know, I think that's exactly um, right. I think that the private, yeah, the, the, the private, you know, feedback is, is important. And I, I like what you just said, you know, around like framing it from a, you're acting in the person's best interest, right? Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you a number of years ago, I had a woman on my team who fell a little bit into the, the gossip trap in the business. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but she was so capable and just amazing at her job. And it bugged me for a while and I knew about it. And finally I said, you know what, I'm going to go have a conversation with this woman. And I told her, I said, you are going to destroy your career if you cannot get off this train. And like, please don't do that because you are amazing, right? Like you are so capable 
but this will be the end of you, right? If this is the reputation that you've built. And she was so appreciative of that feedback. And she said to me, please answer this question. Is it too late for me here, right? Like, have I already dug a ditch so far down that I'm not coming back from it? And I said, absolutely not, but you got to cut it off today. And I think about it and I know where that woman is today and what she's doing. And she has had just an accept, she, she literally just dropped it that day because she thought about, okay, this is what the future stakes are for me. And she's had just an immense journey, you know, in the years since in, a, in an incredible way. Yeah, absolutely. I love that story. Like none of us are perfect and we all need that trusted person to to just give us that heads up. And if we can be open to feedback, like it can make all the difference. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. So when I, when I left wall street to go to tech, um, you know, I, I consider myself like a, 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 a nice, a pretty chill person in the grand scheme of things, but I definitely think I had some habits that carried over in terms of like, you know, very analytical, maybe Mm -hmm. a short fuse for people who weren't in that camp. And Mm -hmm. My boss there in a performance <laughs> review said to me, here's all the things you're doing really well. You're doing great at your job. Um, here's the deal. Uh, you need to chill the fuck out. Part of my friend. <laughs> 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 was like, yeah, you need to chill the fuck out. She's like, you had this like amazing personality sometimes. And sometimes it's like crazy person like comes out in terms of the analytical rigor. And, and this is someone where I got that feedback 14 years ago. I still think of it often. I'm really proud because I think I have chilled out a lot, but I probably once a year text her. And I'm like, remember that time? It definitely stuck. Yeah. That. I love yeah. that. You yeah. know, feedback's really interesting too, because I think, especially with what we're talking about, it, I think it can sometimes be a double-edged sword because I've had moments where I've gotten feedback that you know, people say, um, you know, oh, you're being, you know, manipulative or you're, um, you know, you're not thinking about the bigger picture, like basically using some of the stereotypical things around women uh, against you. And in fact, like sometimes that has come from women that have been my leaders, you know, not just, not just men as well. So one thing I've always tried to, to, calibrate feedback on is, um, where is this person coming from? You know, are they really in my best interest? Um, I always like to pause because there's usually grains of truth, even in feedback that you might not agree with, or might not be coming from a good place, or that's a perception that if it's not true, you you need to manage that perception because perception is reality. But I think that's another important distinction to make because not all feedback is, is equal. Yeah, but I couldn't agree with you more. I think I, I, someone had given that me that piece of advice early in my career of like find one ounce of truth, right, in every mm-hmm. bit of feedback and figure out how you can act on that. And I've taken that lesson, you know, through my career as well. Uh, the, the caveat on that is I think one of the other lessons I've had to learn as I've had larger and larger teams, right? So before coming to primary, I had, you know, 250 person organization yeah. is that the more people you take on, the larger the organization, the larger the responsibility, the increased likelihood that at least one person is going to hate you on any given day, right? And as a leader, <laughs> you got to just be confident and listen for the feedback in there and take the one ounce of things, but you got to be comfortable with the fact that like, inevitably, I would say there's there, there's three things that have to intersect in a business, the needs of the customers, the needs of the employees, and the needs of the business, and the, the Venn diagram of where those things intersect is very, very small, right? So that's yeah. 
yep. just something to get comfortable with as a leader. It's so true. Yeah, I like the the phrase "everyone is somebody's monster." Yeah. So, like, you just have <laughs> like to that, like. Not heard that, but I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah, no matter who you are, someone isn't gonna. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna be evil yeah. to them, or or someone's not yeah. gonna like you. Um, all right, so I think I feel like we could actually continue to talk about totally. this for a while. Um, but if we if we begin to switch gears. Um, you know, what I, whenever I, we can shine a light on something like this, I always like to really then understand, you know, what are we doing about it? And so like, would love to know some of the things that you're thinking about and that, you know, some of the initiatives you're pushing forward in your role to try and yeah. change this landscape, um, you know, and maybe even speak about things that people can do to, to be a part of this, this change. So what comes yeah. to mind? Yeah. So I think I'll probably describe it across three different dimensions. One is that kind of concept of leading by example, which we can come back to in a minute. The second is work at primary, right? Knowing that we back companies and help build teams in our portfolio. And then the third is, you know, work in the broader ecosystem and what people can do like in their extracurricular time to, to support this. You know, so I think in, in, in bucket one and in, in the leading by example, it's, it's just that, right? It's kind of taking on the challenging or uncertain opportunities and, and trying to break through the, you know, glass ceiling. Right. And, you know, I'll share a story with you. So, um, I mentioned when I went to Sildra, I, I ran our global client services team. I did that for a number of years. And then in late, um, 2017, our CEO came to me and said, you know, um, I think you should consider taking our CRO job, right. Which would include the, the new uh, business sales team. And my gut reaction was like, absolutely not. Like I've never run a sales team. Like, and, and I feel like one piece of advice I've gotten over the years is like women sometimes, um, get asked for situations that have already been problem areas and they're set up to fail because they take on like something that's very messy. And, you know, we had admittedly had, you know, a, a mishire in, in that department, but our mm -hmm. CEO then said to me, he was like, let me be clear. If you're going to be a CEO, you got to carry the bag. And I thought that was just a great line. And he was like, take this job. And I did. And it was career changing. Right. And I was amazed yeah. that, you know, being an, a strong general manager, that's what it takes to be a great revenue leader, right? A love of the customer, a strong sense of general management, a commitment to your people. And it was an amazing run for me. And I consider, you know, sales management an operative part of what I do at this point, but it came from this place of, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to set an example and I want to be CEO, this is what I need to go do. Right. And so, you know, particularly like, I, I feel like I've read a lot of research on, you know, you have to be in like the P and L and profit owning roles to own a, to run a business. Right. And so people mm -hmm. really have to lean in on that. So I would say like embracing really uncomfortable opportunities personally to set an example for, for those around me, um, has been really, really important. So that, that's number one. Yeah. Number two is primary, right? And, and I'm thrilled to be in a company. We talk a lot about um, DEI in general, but, you know, women as a key part of that for not only our own firm, but our, you know, portfolio companies, right? So we can influence this in a lot of different ways. You know, we can influence this by participating in initiatives like um, the venture community now has a diversity rider that's going into many term sheets. So we can participate in that. Um, but we also have to build an accountability framework to hold our portfolio companies responsible, right? So mm -hmm. we actually just launched um, a portfolio 
Steel Company census in, in tandem with Columbia Business School to get it kind of a, a read on what the diversity quotient look like in our portfolio companies. Now, the the intention of that is not to say you should have 80% women, you know, on, on this team or that or the other. It's to say, here's where you are today. And how do we force a conversation of continuous improvement, right? It's about progress over perfection. Mm-hmm. And every change in the right direction is a good one. So we can lean in with the portfolio companies that way. But again, going back to my comment earlier, so much of this is about the female founders for us, right? And so I think, you know, it's how do we find amazing women operators who want to start their own thing, who maybe just have been afraid to make the jump? How do we get them comfortable with it? Our model is very sort of high support. And so how do we kind of tip the scale, right, to get them to think about going and making that type of move? Um, So I would say it's, you know, getting to the pipeline point, like, okay, we do want to help with that a little bit, but then when they're in role, how do we support them? How do we hold their feet to the floor on it? Um, So that's kind of the work we're doing at Primary. But then, you know, in the broader ecosystem, this is just, you know, how do you kind of pay it forward and and find other opportunities and axes for influence? So, you know, for instance, I do a lot of work with the Venture for America program, um, which Mm -hmm. has been um, fantastic. And and for folks who aren't familiar with that program, if if you know Teach for America, uh, it's kind of modeled off that, but they take, you know, amazing students who would have typically taken my path of going to banking or consulting and they put them in startups for two to three years in, in, in developing markets. So the Detroits, the Birminghams of the world, one third of those fellows go on to start companies. And so I really lean in on the mentorship opportunities there and, and helping with some of the, the company accelerator efforts on the other side of it. But it goes into, you know, you mentioned chief before Megan, that's great for, you know, senior level women. But, you know, I try to do a lot with the alumni associations at both Duke where I did my undergrad and, and Dartmouth where I did my MBA. But it, it's really, you know, this kind of take every coffee because something, you know, 90% of what you might say to someone might not land, but inevitably in every conversation, there's like a 10% nugget that might fundamentally change how people are thinking about things. So just, you know, really leaning in and, and making time to commit to the cause, I think is really all any of us can do. Yeah. I think you hit on something that really resonated with me as you were telling your story um, about the CEO at sale through giving you that, that sort of push into the CRO role. I had a similar experience when I was at Managed by Q. I joined as the head of account management, but then eventually became the chief operating officer and was leading all go-to-market functions, full P&L responsibility. And it was definitely the CEO really pushing and encouraging me along the way. And I think, you know, I had moments of like, I've never done this before. And I don't know if I can. And um, I think that that is something that does plague women more. This like um, sort of uh, being really hard on yourself. Um, and, you know, I would, I'd, I would actually classify myself as a fairly confident person, but, you know, there's, there's a level of confidence that maybe I didn't have that thought yeah. I'll figure it out as I go. Now that I went through that experience though, and got through the other side, I've achieved that. And I do feel like I can figure anything out, but it, it took that happening for me yeah. to get to that point. And I think that's really difficult to do. It's very difficult to instill confidence in, in young women or women that are early, early on in their career. And more often than not, I feel like, um, you know, maybe the, maybe that stereotype of the male counterpart, they, they carry a little bit more confidence with them. I, I think so. And it's, I'm going to butcher yeah. the exact numbers, but I'm sure you've seen the stat of like <laughs> with job qualifications, 
excuse me, women will only apply to the job if they meet every single one of them. And if men <laughs> hit like meet one of them, they like, <laughs> and I think it is this like commitment to like, you want to have results. You want to be super confident. And so I agree with all that, but I love the point you made about, okay, like once you do it a few times, it just sends your confidence through the roof. Right. And I talk a lot mm-hmm. with, with teams that I manage around muscle memory and, and even how that translates into resilience. Right. Because, yep. you know, I can remember, you know, I mentioned when in the early days of sale through, we hit some like pretty significant um, technical scaling challenges, which was a challenge being the customer leader at that time. And I remember, and I, I was kind of, uh, this speech was referred to and probably mocked for the, until this day, getting on a soapbox and saying to the team, listen, you can walk out the door right now, right? But if you do, you will never build the muscle memory of what it takes to manage through a situation like this. And that will stunt your leadership path, right? And so at your point, I think it's like you lead, you're in those uncomfortable situations enough time that things stop phasing you to a, to a certain degree, right? And uh, so those challenges are always worthwhile, but I couldn't agree with you more on, um, I think women being a little more cautious, right? In terms of what they agree to take on. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one, you know, controversial statement I'll make, or it may be controversial, is people talk a lot about the importance of, of mentors, right? And I, I do have a, a handful of, of wonderful women mentors, but I actually think I've gotten the most leverage out of the male mentors that I have had, because I think I've been fortunate that I found many that are very committed to empowering women, and they are tough and direct, but they push you harder sometimes than the female mentors do. And so, you know, the, the CEO at Sail Through Neil Lustig I mentioned before is like one of those where I feel like I, you know, I haven't worked for him and in, in now coming up on two years and I, I still get the occasional text of him pressing me to think about something else, which I do love. It's great. Yeah. For that. No, I love that. I think there's truth to that. Um, and mentorship's an interesting one for me too. I've always really had difficulty in finding like what I would perceive as like a mentor that would stick with me. But someone said something to me once that I really loved. They said, um, instead of trying to find your perfect mentor, like look for the mentorship moments that happen yeah. around you every day. And yeah. maybe you just get one little nugget of wisdom from one person, but but carry carry that with you. And that really flipped my perspective and and those can be everybody around you can really be can really be a mentor and that's helped me yeah and you mentioned chief before i mean they talk a lot about the personal board of advisors long before chief i always thought about that right of like okay you have different people you tap for different things and you pull something out of it so i agree with that i also think that like your team can be act as critical mentors to you, right? So Absolutely. I'll share this example. You know, we had a sales kickoff event at Sail Through a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, and so as the CRO, it's like a main stage event, right? It is your event. Oh yeah. Uh, one of my best friends, her, her mom passed away that week. And mm-hmm. I said to my number two, I said, I, I think I'm going to have to leave early on the Friday to go to this funeral. Like I, I can't. And my, my number two, um, Ellen said to me, if I could be honest with you for a moment, you need to go to that funeral. And she said, because sometimes you get so into your work that it comes across as almost a little robotic and not human. And I think it would pay you dividends to go and show the team that that matters. And I'm like, I love yeah. that 
push me on. And it's something I think about all the time. And so I would say like drawing into your direct reports to push you to be a better leader too, is just a critical ingredient for, for leaders. Yeah, totally agree. It's a great story. Um, uh, again, we could go on and on about this, but let me, let me throw you some, some two final questions. I like, I always like to end with these. Um, so, uh, let's do what I call a future cast 10 years from now. It's 2030. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic is long behind us. Um, what do you what do you hope to be true, though, as it relates to, um, you know, to, to women in leadership, women founders? What, what do you hope is true 10 years from now? I hope that 10 years from now, 100 percent of tech companies have a C-suite position filled by women. And ideally, one that is on the uh, the commercial side of the business, either revenue or customer leadership. And maybe one second order, just bonus, I'll get in there. And I think you'll appreciate this, Megan, coming from, you know, the the running the customer teams, the COO path. We both kind of went at it that way. I have tremendous conviction that the chief customer officer becomes the next chief revenue officer. And I'd like to see more of that as well. Yep. I completely agree with that. Um, And uh, yeah, it all comes back to sort of in your team and then your customers and then the business. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, So, I mean, we, you dropped a lot of really awesome actionable takeaways Mm -hmm. today um, in, in going through this topic, but you know, if, if you had to sort of hone in on one piece of advice for people listening, one main thing to take away from this conversation, Mm -hmm. what would it be? I briefly alluded to this before, and I think it would be an understanding of the financial drivers and P&L of the business. And and Mm -hmm. I'll particularly put a point on that for women. And I can remember having a conversation um, with, you know, a female board member a number of years ago who said to me, you know, a lot of women see the income statement and they like freeze up in paralysis and it's a real blocker. And for me as as a leader, this is I always pushed everyone on my team on it, particularly women, because I think I just observe them shying away from it more, you know, understanding the financial drivers of the business and the income statement is a difference between a good functional VP and a great executive, right? And I think people miss these really tactical examples of that, right? Like, you know, you and I both ran customer teams. People fail to forget, even within running a customer success team, what's your team doing? Are they a cost of goods sold or are they driving sales and marketing? Well, the classification of that impacts the gross profit of the company, right? And so I think really leaning into that and as managers pushing people on your team to take a course here or one thing we did at SailThrough that was always really helpful is we did these regular Friday breakfast series and probably at least once a year, we'd have the CFO do a PL walk for the company. And then, you know, people could ask questions. And so I think really empowering people around the actual business management side of things is, is crucially important. I couldn't agree more. That's really great tactical advice that, that people can act on right now. Um, that's amazing. Um, so as we kind of conclude our conversation today, um, where can people uh, learn more about you and, and what you're working on? Where can people find you? Absolutely. Well, please visit uh, primary.vc and you can read more about my background there. You can reach me at Cassie at primary.vc. What I would tell you is like, always love to meet with great talent, particularly great women talent. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as I said before, I, I'll stick by my take every coffee meeting, but particularly, you know, as I said, we're really committed to 
uh, backing amazing founders. So I would say if there's women out there who are amazing operators who are like, well, I don't have the idea or I'm not exactly sure, but you're passionate about it, um, please reach out and you can find more information on our website and uh, also increasingly trying to make more time to put pen to paper on just some thoughts around, you know, how to run your business and structure things so you can find some of those insights there as well. That's amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today, thank Cassie. You for having me. It's, I feel like you and I could talk for hours, but uh, this, is, this is great. Yeah, we really could. No, this was a great conversation and really happy to, to know you and have you in my network and uh, really appreciate what we were able to, to discuss today. Great. Thanks again, Megan. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. 